Welcome to the Invincible Innovation Show, the podcast for changemakers. Each week, I talk to the most fascinating entrepreneurs and innovation leaders about innovation, strategy, and design. Hey, everyone. Today, we'll talk about transforming your organization into ecosystem-driven platforms. Welcome to Invincible Innovation Live Show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm Adima Zorkaria, innovation and value creation expert, and I'll be your host. And to have, today, I have a very special guest, Hal Simone. Hi, how are you? Hello. Hello. Nice Great to, to see you. Simone Cicero is the CEO of Bandrilis and creator of Platform Design Toolkit. How are you today? Very good. I'm very looking forward to this conversation with you since uh, a few weeks. So let's, let's uh, do that. Yeah, and we're live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook, and you're much invited to join the discussion and ask questions. We'd love to hear what you think. And now we can start. Before we just dive into the innovation uh, discussion, could you tell us about the Platform Design Toolkit? Yes, so let's try to be brief. Uh, Platform Design sure. Toolkit is a seven years long uh, story. Uh, it started in 2013, now eight almost, um, where basically when I, I was invited to the Barcelona Design Week and uh, I was asked to basically you know, talk about platforms that were, that was my uh, interest, you know, in, in that, uh, that time. Uh, it was the moment where new businesses such as uh, Airbnb and Uber were uh, just uh, grabbing the, you know, the, the news uh, uh, highlights. And uh, uh, I prototyped basically a, a fork of the uh, business model canvas. And because uh, I was working with customers since a few months and, uh, and uh, about this topic of platforms and ecosystems. And uh, I, I noticed that uh, the linearity, let's say, you know, the, this pipeline um, uh, version of, uh, of a business uh, model uh, wasn't really fit to, to the purpose I was uh, trying to achieve with customers. You know, this idea that uh, we wanted to have a more systemic understanding of all the players that were involved in these new innovative business models. And so I prototyped that in 2013, and from then, uh, uh, since then, basically, I always um, pursued this uh, uh, community-driven, open conversation. Uh, the, the kit, uh, the platform design canvas at the time, it was only one one canvas, uh, was uh, released in Creative Commons as uh, the business model canvas was. And uh, and uh, from since then, basically, we have been releasing uh, the first uh, massive release in 2016. It was a pack- repackaging of many more canvases, basically the platform design toolkit uh, uh, in its original release in 2016 was was including, you know, uh, tools to understand your uh, the, the players in the ecosystem, what they could exchange, what kind of learning systems you can create to improve the performance of everyone. And basically, finally, how do you contextualize it into an experience that you want to bring to the to the ecosystem? And um, uh, since then, we had uh, terrific demand, and I've been uh, essentially training uh, almost a thousand people all over the world. The first when it was possible to travel in uh, London, Berlin, Paris, uh, New York, and many, many other cities, Amsterdam, and so on. And uh, since uh, the start of 2000, uh, uh, well, since the start of the pandemic, and then we, we moved 
to online training. So we had the opportunity to train people from all over the world. And at the moment, there are more than a, more than 150 certified practitioners on our book camp. So we have kind of creating this community of practice uh, around exploring innovation uh, opportunities through platforms, designing platform strategies. And now we are also integrating validation tools uh, and uh, growth analysis no? so that for example the followers of our work uh, will know that in the last uh, three months two months and a half we started uh, producing a growth uh, series to analyze network effects and growth uh, engines in general uh, and has been very interesting uh, so far so that's pretty much uh, what the PDT is it's a toolkit a set of canvases for uh, strategizing in platforms so it sounds like a journey that you started like with something small and then it's it came mm. like to, to be bigger. And do you think that through this, these years, you learned something that you didn't know in the beginning? What was like new for you that you learned through the creation of something which is bigger? Mm. Well, uh, a lot, because uh, most of the in uh, increments uh, and additions to Platform Design Toolkit uh, were uh, essentially driven by you know, my work with customers, our work with customers. So we also provide, of course, uh, private workshops for those that uh, cannot attend our public trainings or, or cannot do self-application uh, um, self because we also release uh, uh, completely fu fully free uh, Creative Commons release the user guides that you can use to do anything uh, you want on your own, but uh, working directly with customers uh, and also those that have been attending our master classes uh, with their own projects uh, has always been a great uh, source of uh, innovation uh, in, in the tools. What I've learned, you know, uh, I learned that, um, uh, you know, since the very start, I think in terms of content, uh, I've learned that, um, uh, first of all, platforms are much more complex uh, than uh, it seemed. Uh, so, for example, marketplaces are only one of the phases of the strategy. You also have a uh, very important product side of a platform strategy. Uh, if you think about, uh, for example, the software as a service that uh, most of the platform players provide to their customers that normally are the producers on the market. So, um, you know, besides helping them to connect with customers, also that product side, you know, what I make easier of your workflow is very important. Uh, then uh, I also learned that um, uh, you can strategize around uh, your paths to grow. So, for example, the work we are doing on flywheels and network effects analysis, uh, this is also extremely important uh, at the strategic uh, level, not just as a, as a tactic. You know? So that's also another thing that is very important. The most important thing I learned, I think, is that when you create a language and a methodology, you need to be patient, patient. Uh, so you yeah. you cannot go and every week change the canvas, uh, even if you wanted to, because um, uh, languages need to be, um, you know, need to create a space for conversation and uh, having a shared uh, taxonomies, shared glossaries. This is extremely important. And also, if I can add that uh, canvases are important, but the most important thing of the work we do, I think, is about aligning teams. And uh, there is this magic that happens when you create frameworks that instantly people stop arguing with each other and they start to argue about the design they are making, uh, which is a very powerful way to do 
real strategy, you know, because sometimes we talk about strategy and we imagine, you know, these consultants and leaders, you know, in a room, you know, plotting stuff on the wall. But the reality is that then teams need to execute the strategy. And so anything that you create that can align a team towards a shared vision and can become the context and the objective of the discussion besides my position and your position, uh, it's really powerful because it starts to become the place where everything gets attracted and everything gets so consolidated and and aligned teams to 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 towards execution. Yeah. So what you're saying is this language that you talked about is something that people acquire and then they could use it in order to communicate better and to understand better what they're doing and what is the goals and going from strategy to really execution demands the same understanding of what the C-level decided and what is being executed by the teams. Right. So, right. So, yeah. So, I mm -hmm. mean, Paul Graham says that... Uh, uh, strategy is a form of procrastination. No? So whatever we do, whatever <laughs> we do to that. whatever we do to shorten this path to execution, uh, that cannot just start, you know, from from scratch. You, know? you cannot execute if you don't have a shared vision. Then, but this, you know, this uh, path, path uh, sorry, this process to produce this shared strategic vision needs to be short. And this is what we, our frameworks are, are all about, you know. So do this in a few days, but then start uh, executing. Yeah, I, I know that when you, when you say about procrastination, it, uh, I heard a, a talk, and he's uh, and the and he said that it takes about two years for a company that that was uh, disturbed by a disruptive innovation to think about a strategy. <laughs> to think what could be done or should be done. And mm -hmm. it takes two years for a company. And you know, like a startup in two companies could be a unicorn worth $1 billion, so more or less. Right. Um, the, the, the timing and the time it takes could be, should be adjusted to what is needed. And if you shorten the time from thinking to doing, uh, it, it really gives you an advantage. This is how yeah, it's. especially in in a in a period of uh, inflection points, you know, when uh, you do this, you you need to do this as a corporate, for example. You don't need to do that uh, this thing of rethinking uh, your business model, for example, every ten years. You need to do it uh, every six months. Uh, and uh, and if you if you every time it happens, you wait two years to put everybody on the same page, then it's gonna be very hard for you to catch up with D 2 C innovators that are gonna cut chunks of, of your market away. Yeah, and, and do you see like companies doing that every six years or every year even? I mean, the the companies that are mostly innovative at the moment, I see some of them, uh, they essentially have embraced uh, a way to um, just avoid doing this uh, uh, in a top-down uh, manner. So uh, they've been uh, unbundling and fluidifying their own... Uh, their own organizational structure, so they don't don't even need to think about that. So because that happens uh, at the edge of the organization in a very organic and continuous way. Uh, so some companies are doing it. Some others, I would say, the vast majority are just playing this innovation theater that uh, you know very well. I mean, uh, that's the uh, most challenging aspect of uh, innovating in a corporate. You know, that uh, um, uh, you know the environment tends to value a slide uh, as much as uh, an experiment. And uh, this is a very problematic topic. Yeah. 
So what do you think is like, why do companies do this innovation theater? So I understand the PR marketing aspect of it, but I believe that they don't know really how to play the game. And that's why they're doing this theater. What do you think? Well, the theater aspect is uh, mostly related to social, social and uh, cultural elements. And also, uh, you know, you be familiar, you would be probably familiar with the work of uh, David Graeber, not that uh, complained um, anthropologist, uh, when he referred to this idea of bullshit jobs. And also you have this position, you have this title attached to your to yourself, and then uh, uh, nothing else counts. You know, it's just how much you can uh, uh, consolidate that position, uh, even if uh, it's attached to a ton of uh, technical and organizational debt. Uh, as long as you are protected, you don't need to be effective. You don't need to be learning, you know, because uh, uh, the laws, the policies, uh, uh, the culture protects you. Uh, and uh, that's an issue that is stronger, uh, especially in Europe and uh, in the U.S., but in Europe, most of all, and that's why, for example, Europe has uh, uh, the uh, most lagging startup ecosystem or innovation ecosystem uh, overall, not because our culture is a culture of protection of the workers. And um, that's one thing. Uh, the, uh, so the, the theater part is more a social and cultural element, while uh, the uh, lack of capability to actually innovate is more a complex uh, topic, is, uh, is related to... Um, uh, I would say uh, the fact that we are transitioning in a new uh, age and uh, this transition has been happening uh, much faster than anyone in the corporate space has been able to cope with for structural reasons, uh, mainly, uh, you know, the fact that the organizational model we used uh, has been optimized for certain types of business models that uh, have generated the success and the uh, lots of inertia. So the, the, I would say that... Um, uh, the, the, the problem is twofold. One is uh, cultural and one is uh, really technical, technological. So uh, considering an organizational model as a technology, uh, our organizational technology is not uh, ready. And uh, this is uh, also, I think, interesting um, if you consider that most of the organizational innovations we are seeing, especially in the corporate space, are coming from China that as that doesn't have this industrial organizational tradition that we have yeah the fact that europe is mainly uh, built on manufacturing capabilities uh, makes it hard for, for for the leaders of these like industries to think as a technical or a, a software product related uh, processes which are so different and and the business model is different, the revenues are different, the way that you could grow is different, so forth. It, it reminds me that I heard like a few like weeks ago, somebody said that the Hilton uh, hotels, it took uh, 93 uh, years in order to build 600,000 rooms. And it took about, I think, five years for Airbnb to get 2 million rooms mm -hmm. out there. So the, the, how fast it could be, right? They didn't build a room, but they gave a solution to the same problem, right? So the the, the fact that it's so fast is something that is so um, alien for them, I guess, and that makes it hard for them to, to think about it this way. Yeah, definitely, definitely. This is the inertia part, but I think also 
um, the, the question is not just in the processes that these companies have been running, for example, manufacturing, but also in the um, really in the expectations of uh, uh, you know how do you relate with work. Now you relate with work as a thing that happens, uh, uh, you know, at some stage of your life, and uh, uh, at least this is the classic way to relate with, to work in, in Europe, for example. And then it goes. Uh, uh, it's enough for you to do your to do your job, you know, which is uh, yeah. this uh, crazy idea. But also the IP, the relationship we have with IP, intellectual property in Europe and the US, uh, has been uh, also, I think, slowing down a lot uh, our capability to uh, deal with the, the competi competition and deal with uh, uh, new things coming up. While, for example, Chinese, uh, 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 the, the Chinese culture is much more friendly to um, share the IP. Uh, if you are familiar with the uh, uh, Shanzai topic and in, so in general uh, I, I think that our uh, let's say industrial management um, uh, tradition uh, of success of course uh, is now a big big uh, issue for uh, for European and, and US uh, at some point uh, organizations especially the incumbents. So what do you think is the biggest obstacle for innovation for companies today? Well, I mean, as I said, more or less uh, uh, policy is one. So the fact that uh, um, our uh, legislation around the jobs, for example, is so protective mm -hmm. for the worker, this is mm -hmm. one thing. Uh, then, uh, as I said, uh, um, our uh, um, culture, so our inability to uh, question the value of the work we do. So uh, when you're saying culture is like the company culture or the country culture in general? Well, uh, I mean, uh, it's very much more a problem of, uh, uh, of um, uh, European culture, for example, or in general, uh, you know, it's a, it's a mix. Uh, if, you, if you think about the culture of work we have in Europe and mostly, mostly in the US, it's related to the Protestant ethic of work and is uh, very much deeply related to the idea of a bureaucracy. Um, so uh, it's hard to untangle European culture, for example, of uh, work from the story, the history that we have, which is an history of uh, colonialism and an history of uh, uh, st um, structured and uh, uh, dominating organizations. Uh, um, it's 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 really it's really complex. But uh, yeah, I think the culture as a whole, uh, it's um, it's too important, you know, to some extent to to change uh, as fast as we should uh, yeah. now in this moment. Uh, yeah, so this I is another thing, and of course the the last part is the inertia uh, due to past success. You know, companies have business models that. Uh, uh, have been working for decades and so now you know what is happening uh, and they don't get these um, uh, this, the fact that I think we live through a, a nexus at the moment you know it's a nexus between two ages and uh, and um, and uh, yeah they, they seem to be too attached to the to the past uh, uh, but also because they lack the organizational capabilities so that's also I think uh, to be honest, the organizational development uh, community as well uh, should be, I don't want to say blamed, but um, uh, it has uh, it has been not enough, uh, uh, I would say, ready to question most of the frames 
that we use to define an organization. So now we are lagging because uh, uh, we are not used to question the the, uh, the existing frames of organizing that we've been used to for, for, for decades. Yeah. And I think that most professionals from organizational development comes from a legacy of what they studied in the, in the academy and academy doesn't like talk about innovation that much and what they are used to doing with companies that are not innovating and the structures they're helping to build is the past structures and not the future ones. And mm. that maybe they are, they know it, they know them less and maybe they are not used to even thinking this way about an organization as a live entity that needs to adjust and move and, And, and not be that stable and static as, as they are used to. Yeah, yeah. Also the entrenched uh, uh, interests that uh, exist you know, around existing organizations. For example, when you think about uh, uh, the workers, you know, they, the, the existing organizations, especially in Europe, they seem to have this uh, um, very strong uh, responsibility towards their workers and uh, Uh, and uh, it's hard, essentially, to, to change organizations because uh, uh, you want to protect all the existing uh, uh, interests that ex exist around the organizational structure. So it's hard to... Um, if, the, if there is no systemic approach, I think uh, there is, there is, it, uh, this is why, for example, Chinese and uh, to some extent also US-based organizations uh, are more keen to innovate because there is more... Uh, strategically systemic uh, approach uh, at the national level. So, especially in China, I mean, China is, is crazy, you know, there is this uh, vertical integration of the state and the corporate and the market uh, that allows, uh, for example, organizations to take uh, um, very bold transformational, uh, transformational efforts because they, they, the worker is not just the worker of the company. It's also a state worker to some extent. And in Europe, this doesn't really happen. There is a friction between the corporate or in general, the private capital uh, that is seen to some extent as an enemy of the worker. You know? So uh, because of our story, you know, our history of, uh, of you know, relationships between capital and, and, and labor, And, um, and if you have this conflicting con 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 uh, situation where often the state is seen as a third party, you know, like yeah, somebody that needs to regulate and moderate without any strategic involvement in the discussion, which is what Chinese are doing now, uh, it's, it becomes really hard to compete, especially in a world where uh, now uh, power is regionalizing. And uh, we are seeing massive trends of... Uh, Uh, you know, um, multipolar, uh, a multipolar world. And so it will become even more in important to have a direct connection between the market and the policymakers with a strategic vision that needs to be achieved. And I think Israel, for example, is a very good uh, example of, of this, you know, the government and the, and the private sector really working together to achieve what they aim, aim for. Yeah, and one more thing that is very prominent uh, here in Israel is the fact that people are uh, love. I don't know if they love. They're used to change. That's what I would say. So mm -hmm. for them, going from one job to the other, especially in technology, like every year, two years, three years, it's it just makes sense to them. They don't think about going to a company and growing up within a company and going through the organization ladder. They, they are going to another company and getting more money and a better salary and, 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 and a better, uh, uh, maybe there are more managers right now and so forth. 
they're doing that just by zigzagging. They, they mm -hmm. don't need to stay in one place. So if we're talking about that, so how could building like ecosystems help companies innovate better? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, in general, I think uh, organizations need to understand that uh, uh, part of the transition, part of this nexus we are living is a nexus between the uh, age of the vertically integrated organization, the, man the managerial organization, into what we call the post-industrial organizing. There is essentially a switch between a shift in power from the center to the edge, from the uh, company to the customers, to the users, and uh, in general from the organi traditional organization into the ecosystem. So if you suddenly change your perspective and, and you understand that innovation doesn't come from inside, but it comes from the outside, what do you need to build is essentially an organization that captures consumption patterns, captures uh, innovation trends, and enables them, and within time, institutionalize these innovations so that the ecosystem can create more value at higher uh, value chain layers. So the, the organization becomes much more defined in an outside-in way than in the traditional inside-out way. And, and to do this, our experience uh, with platform design and uh, the EEO, so the Entrepreneurial Ecosystem Enabling Organization, that is another framework we are now building from the collaboration mm -hmm. we're having with higher and other organizations. It tells us that essentially we are entering an age of micro-entrepreneurial units. So lots of the value that we produce in the, in the economy of today is uh, contextual. So it's, it's in the small teams that can really become, uh, uh, create these uh, uh, deep connection with their audiences. For example, when we talk about knowledge work or even uh, uh, about, you know, how we create a small scale uh, uh, organizations that can um, uh, connect with their community of users uh, locally or, uh, you know, around a certain product. So, so uh, this is why it's very important for organizations at the moment to become to understand that becoming a platform is not just, uh, uh, you know, creating a different business model, but is uh, uh, resetting the, all the processes that they are running from the outside in. And this includes uh, production, but also includes strategy and also includes vision and also includes uh, purpose and also includes, uh, you know, uh, basically all the pillars uh, across uh, which you run your organization. And, uh, and, uh, and really to do so, uh, it takes a lot of, um, uh, I would say, a, a radical approach, you know, because uh, if, if I talk about, uh, for example, what Dave Snowden, I changed it with me on our podcast recently, it was very clear when he said, uh, uh, we need to move away from external scaffolding, uh, so a, a, an exoskeleton, if you want, of your organization that can constrain the growth, it can constrain the movement, into what he calls an internal skeleton, an endoskeleton, if you want. So an internal scaffolding. So once you have an internal scaffolding that is mainly made of constraints, for example, about the rules you need to use to create a new unit or um, uh, the way you interact with other micro units in your organization, then you can grow and adapt to whatever is emerging from the ecosystem. Instead, if you have this very strong centralized idea of, you know, an editorial idea of what your organization is, what your products are, you're not open to these insights coming from outside. You tend to protect, let's say, your vision as a, as a as the center, as the core of the organization. And this creates all sorts of uh, 
frictions and, and fragilities in your in your organization that uh, uh, you know at some point tend to break break up you know there is this fantastic blog uh, that is now hard to find online for some reasons i don't know why but um uh, where uh, shirky uh, said that uh, clay shirky said that uh, uh, the last sign of uh, um uh, having a too complex organization essentially is, is is collapse is failure so you just tend to collapse at some point because your organization doesn't fit with the needs and and the elasticity that you need to have uh, to deal with the modern world yeah so it's like a, there is this metaphor if if you if there is strong wind you could either be a tree or a grass and if you're mm -hmm. a grass and you know how to go with the wind although the, that you're softer and maybe even more fragile you you will sustain yourself and if you're very strict and you have these rules and this is what i am i'm not something else and i'm not open to anything outside i will not be able to really hold this wind of winds of change actually that that are currently happening all over the world much much more right now with with covid for sure mm -hmm. and and what do you think is the most important element of an organizational structure other than this fluidity that you just said is it like going from the management is like the the structure of, of of the company is it like the way that they manage the different units and the new opportunities outside so forth well i i think in general there again again there are essentially three three aspects uh one is definitely the cultural aspect no? so I, i will mention the three so i don't forget one is Uh, one is uh, culture, one is technology, let's say, and one is uh, uh, the organizational structure. And uh, the culture uh, is really important, and uh, and it often comes from leadership. Uh, it comes from the, um, for example, you know, I've been working with a higher group in the last uh, two years, and uh, a lot of what the organization has been able to achieve in the last decades uh, Uh, it comes from uh, this visionary leader, no? the, the CEO, Jean Grumin, uh, that uh, is an extremely well-read and, uh, um, you know, very uh, enthusiastic thinker that has been pushing these waves of narrative shift through the organization until he built uh, an organization where the culture is so strong, the entrepreneurial culture is so strong, that now they attract entrepreneurs. They don't have any more, they don't even need any more to select and to, uh, because the people they attract, they're always uh, and already thinking this way. And uh, so first of all, if you're a leader in your organization, what you need to do, you need to build this uh, culture. You need to build these narratives, narratives of expanded opportunities, narrative of entrepreneurship, narrative of human development, and, and so on. Then uh, the technology. Uh, for our, uh, in our understanding, uh, unbundling the technology into, the, into pieces and creating all these interfaces between the pieces that you that you run in, in your organization, being it a, a technological enabler, being it a go-to-market context, like an ecosystem or a marketplace, being it, uh, I don't know, an extension platforms as we call them. Um, so ways for in, to integrate more technological solutions into your system, like with application extenders or templates or plugins. Um, so having the technology 
seeing the technologies as this unbundled set of pieces that you can recombine and rebundle neither to the customers, that's extremely important, extremely important. So if your organization, for example, has uh, two units that uh, uh, conflict over a certain way to manage a piece of software or hardware, then you need to be able to see the big picture because otherwise you'd never be able to say, you know, it makes sense for us to commoditize this piece of hardware because we can build a software ecosystem on top of it. Uh, you will always have the hardware unit saying, you know, I'm not going to be, a, I'm not going to let you commoditize our work because we are the hardware players and you know, we are the hardware builders. So you need to have this, overall vision. And finally, uh, on top of this vision, if you do not build, a, a, you know, create an organizational model where essentially everybody has a skin in the game. Everybody has a, an interface to everybody else. Uh, and it's easy to recombine. It's easy for entrepreneurs to say, you know, I want to build this. I'm going to take my risk. I'm going to seek uh, for someone in the organization that invests into this idea then uh, it's going to be impossible, essentially, for you to create innovations. So either you unbundle your organization and you make it as, um, I would say, a better place to create innovation versus the outside, which is not in most of the existing organizations, yeah. uh, uh, then you're not going to have innovations. So the big questions for organizations are today is this. Uh, leaders need to understand that uh, the biggest challenge of organizing of the 21st century is to convince someone to work for your organization, to contribute into inside your organization. And it's, and it's a matter of purpose, it's a matter of technology, and it's a matter of organizational model. If you do not approach all these things uh, uh, with the idea that I want, you want to create a place where people need to be, um, uh, I would say, enthusiastic of you know, joining and contributing and finding their ways to develop themselves and creating new innovations, then nothing is going to happen. You're going to fail yeah. all the time. You're going to run after the market all the time. And you're going to need so much money to keep with that. Uh, that uh, is going to be very challenging uh, for your organization to, uh, to play a, a decent role. Yeah, I think that what you're saying, uh, as I see it, is like you have so many talents and so many human resources that you are not utilizing. And in order for them to, to do more, you need to enable that. Right now, they have only one role, one thing. This is what they're doing, what they're told they're doing. This is what their, 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 their yes. daily life is. And if you want to create something, it cannot come from a very smart someone in the sea level saying, yeah, that's an idea and then it will happen. You need so much more people creating and innovating in order to have this very, very good one idea that could grow your, your company. And it needs to be more, much more vast than what most companies are thinking. Yeah, maybe I can challenge a little bit at this last point that uh, I, I don't, I think another big important thing to understand that, that today is not just, uh, no more just about the big ideas as well, is that uh, the growth that we can generate in a world that is much more interconnected and where the small is much more capable is a growth that is made of many small or medium pieces. So markets are going to be much more vertical, much more managed, much more uh, contextual. So imagine that the future is going to be much less about Airbnb and much more about a thousand hospitality platforms that serve specific niches. Mm -hmm. So 
to develop this, you need a, a pervasive entrepreneurship. You need pervasive leadership. You need a thousand leaders. You don't, don't just need one, you know? So uh, uh, even if you think about Uber, for example, when Uber uh, was challenged by growing in different cities, they uh, pushed the profit and loss a lot into the hands of the regional leaders, the city leaders. So uh, growth in a world that is hyper-connected is happening in a very per um, pervasive and micro way. So uh, it's not even about doing a lot of bets until you get the big bet. It's about uh, embracing this idea that uh, you don't want to uh, direct growth in a certain direction, but you need to capture growth opportunities as they emerge in the context. And to do this, you need empowered professionals that are able to take ownership for their market, to, to manage their money, manage their teams, managing their profit and loss so that they can add that bit of success that is going to make the success of the organization. And this is going to, it's very challenging, for example, for one thing, that is profit maximization. This is why uh, uh, embracing an ecosystemic organization where strategy is much more emergent and uh, uh, where direction is, uh, there is much more creative entropy of the organization going in this market, that market, their product. Uh, it's, it's challenging for the idea that we have the corporate as a machine to maximize the shareholder value uh, because uh, shareholder value is completely decontextualized while growth in the future is much more contextual. So we're moving away from the monolithic organization in what, for example, my friend Nora Bateson uh, calls the transcontextual organization. And a transcontextual organization is much more uh, related to uh, people on the field, in the context, that understand what value they can create without obsessing about maximizing the profit generation capabilities, but maybe much more invested into creating something that is uh, important for the people that use that services and is resilient as becomes uh, part of daily lives uh, for, many, for many professionals and, and individuals. So what you're saying is uh, <clears throat> that companies need to uh, be more open-minded in a sense that they need to understand what's going on within the field and therefore they need someone there. They cannot be, all the C-level cannot just distribute to all of the locations. So they need so many people out there. And once they are integrated into these societies and into these contexts, the power of the company is much bigger because they are answering the real needs of all these locations at once, all these opportunities, all these solutions, all these capabilities at once. Yes, I mean, it becomes a much more, you know, it's not just about uh, uh, piloting growth and opportunities from your office in San Francisco. It's really about being in the context, you know, being in the, in the space. And uh, CEOs and C-levels in general, so in general, uh, management uh, layers in existing organizations, they need to care about their jobs because uh, uh, the path they are on most of the times so with this monolithic approach to markets is a part of irrelevance and, and failure. So uh, uh, they need to embrace essentially that uh, and understand that uh, the challenges to the corporate model and the incumbency uh, are so big that it's really existential. You know? So um, really, we really need this two dual narrative. One is extremely in, uh, great opportunity that we have now to transform everything we do with the internet, with these technologies. Uh, but on the other hand, there is uh, something to be embraced, which is uh, uh, 
how to become um, entrepreneurial enough to be in touch with your customers, in touch with your market, enable them in this continuous interaction, uh, uh, much less about you know projecting your idea into the market, expecting that the market will buy that. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I think it's it's some kind of democratizing uh, what is the organization uh, yes. actually and really changing the way that we think about a business. Uh, and it's much more fluent. It's much more, it's like embracing change in a, in a wider sense of not only I decide something different right now, I, I allow many people in, in the uh, organization to do decisions and to go and take it further right. and do yeah. something with it. But also from the outside, you know, so really uh, understanding what is the role of the brand and the organization in this outside-in uh, landscape versus the traditional one. That uh, That's the big challenge. Yeah, it is a big challenge. Both sides are challenging, I, I guess, especially right now. If, if we talked about uh, the fast change that there are in the markets right now and the COVID crisis, it's even much, much faster. So they need to yeah. do it even like uh, in emergency, I would say, than that it, when it, it before it was important but not uh, in, in emergency right like right now right so i want to thank you for your time it's been such a, such a pleasure so where could people hear more about what you're doing and about the the uh, platform design toolkit and so forth well i mean the the easiest way is to go on our website platformdesigntoolkit.com where they can find uh, all the activities we do at Boundaryless. We are in the process of launching a new website and a new brand, so stay tuned. Wow, in, in the good next luck. Of months. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is also a good a good example of a transition, you know, because when you start around one product, and now I didn't tell that uh, Boundaryless itself is uh, in the process of embracing this idea of uh, uh, distributed profit and loss. And so you can see, you know, how much challenging is from a branding perspective. And it's been a great uh, opportunity to learn. So platformdesigntoolkit.com, uh, but then I would like to mention my Twitter uh, handle uh, um, uh, at uh, 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 Midabyte, so M-E-E-D-A-B-Y-T-E, and LinkedIn, of course, I'm there, uh, and it's a, always a great way to engage around business uh, uh, conversation. I can mention that in our website, uh, they will be able to find uh, uh, three toolkits. One is called the uh, Platform Design Toolkit, the one we've been talking about. Then we have, uh, and by the way, tomorrow we're going to launch a new version of our Platform Opportunity Exploration Guide. That is congratulations. Uh, something that you used before the design and has been two mm -hmm. years uh, in on the field, so it's really interesting. And uh, of course the. E EEO toolkit, that is our entrepreneurial ecosystem enabling organization toolkit that I'm going to teach uh, very soon at a masterclass coming up in April, uh, late April with Bill Fisher and uh, Manuela Quintarelli. So if you are interested in understanding how you can challenge your organizational model, this is a very short term opportunity that uh, that you have. Wow, it sounds sounds great. It sounds good. So I want to thank you again. It's been uh, such a pleasure, Simone, to have you here. And I really enjoyed our talk. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward maybe to meet you in Israel as soon as possible. Oh, as you're as so travel. invited. You know, yeah, I was I, there I, once, but I really look forward to, to come again. Uh, you're, you're, so you have a, you could be my guest next time the, when you come. So I would Hopefully love to see soon. you here. 
hopefully. And to all of you change makers out there, thank you for joining me. You're much invited to visit invincibleinvasion.com and I'll see you next week with another insightful talk. See ya. Thank you. I'm Adima Zorkario and you've been listening to the Invincible Innovation Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, invincibleinnovation.com, where you can learn more about our programs and my book, Innovating Through Chaos. I'll be waiting for you next week in our next episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.